Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a dream of the Bay Area as a place of liberation. Queer liberation, black liberation, trans liberation, liberation for all. It's a reputation that's certainly tarnished as this place has become so expensive, but it's still there, still exerting its pull on young people as surely now as it did when Armistead Maupin wrote Tales of the City or Huey Newton called the Panthers back to Oakland. So Corey Antonio Rose arrived having heard the tales and found himself disappointed. Where were the places for a young gay black man from Jacksonville to find his people? He went searching and created a series about the quest for KQED's Right Now-ish podcast. We talk about what he found. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, and right here at the top, I want to introduce you to Corey Antonio Rose, a superstar in the making here at KQED. He's a journalist currently working as a production intern for the Right Nowish podcast, and he's the creator of a series for that show called Searching for a Kiki about his efforts to understand the history and present of black queer spaces in the Bay Area. Welcome, Corey Antonio. Good morning, Alexis. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And, you know, first, because I'm old and out of touch with cool things, can you tell me about the name of this series? It is called Searching for a Kiki. And what does that, what does it mean? What's a kiki? Um, so a kiki is a gathering. It's, it's when you and your good homegirls or homeboys or home siblings get together and y'all are just, you know, just having a good time, having a good laugh, not having to worry about anything else in the world. Got it. So when you arrived in the Bay Area, it was August of last year, what were your sort of expectations of the Bay Area and, and what did you experience? Of course. Well, I say this in the series, but when I first moved here, all of my friends back home, they were like, oh, San Francisco, you know, that's gay Mecca. That's where, you know, Harvey Milk and all of these other activist spaces have have really flourished. Um, And so I was expecting, I don't know, I was just expecting a lot of acceptance, a lot of tolerance. I was expecting to see a lot of different spaces for different people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I definitely found that. I definitely think the Bay Area has a beautiful diversity of spaces. I just don't think black ownership is is (laughs) a major part of that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about when you started to like go out into the Bay Area and particularly into say like the Castro, you know, a a legendary neighborhood, right? Yeah. did you go looking for like, well, where's the sort of where are the black owned bars in the Castro and then not find them? Or were you just kind of out in the Castro and, and started to feel like, oh, actually, this is maybe more familiar than I want it to be? Well, I think it starts like I, li- I live in Berkeley. And so it's definitely started like, oh, where are the gay bars in Berkeley? And there's one there's Whitehorse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I go down to Oakland. And I'm like, OK, well, where are the black gay bars? Um, and then I go to San Francisco and I'm like, where are the black gay bars? And I'm realizing, oh, I don't think there are any. Or if mm-hmm. there are, I'm not finding them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so then it just sparked this huge curiosity because I know I'm not the only or the first 
uh, black person to move to the Bay expecting to see all these different spaces or expecting to have all these different experiences. So it just made me curious about where the spaces were and who came before me to make space. Yeah. You know, did you have a place back home in Florida that was like, that was your place? That was where you wanted, you, you know, you felt included and at home and it was, you know, the, the kind of spaces you wanted. Did you, were you trying to find a version of that space or were you trying to find a new kind of space, like a place you hadn't been to in Florida but that you hoped would be here? I think I was definitely trying to find a new kind of space. Um, what what really interested me about San Francisco was the culture of acceptance and the culture of openness that we don't necessarily have in Florida. And so I was really curious to see how that would color people's experiences in the nightlife, in the bars, in the clubs, in the, you know, drag brunches, in the what have yous. Um, yeah. Yeah. When did you sort of realize, like, oh, you know what, I should report this out. Like, this is my experience that I'm having, and now I'm going to kind of turn this into a reported project where I kind of put my journalist chops to work. I think it came from talking with elders over the time, over the first like six months of me being in California and just hearing this constant through line between like, you know, I would talk to somebody who was 40 and lived in Oakland for 30 years, or I would talk to somebody who was 30 and lived in Oakland for 10 years. And they all sort of had these individual, but specifically like related stories of how they would find, it took forever to find a space. And then once they had one, it would be, you know, closed for whatever reason. Um, and so it just, yeah, it led me down this rabbit hole to try to track out what is the history and what do these spaces look like traditionally in the Bay? Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes people talk about intersectionality, you know, this idea that different aspects of someone's identity come together to kind of structure the particular constraints on their life. It's a, really like an abstract notion and not just kind of like a basic <laughs> uh, component of analyzing reality. And I feel like this series, that's really what it tries to present, right, is a kind of intersectional analysis of nightlife in, in this place. Absolutely. I mean, I think the Bay Area is is does a beautiful job with with learning the language of diversity, equity, inclusion. But when it comes to actually implementing that into our practices and our behaviors and our attitudes about the people who, you know, we live next to, I think the Bay definitely has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, first have you kind of introduce us to the lead character in the in the first episode of the podcast, Rodney Barnett. Absolutely. Rodney is an OG. He is a Vietnam War vet. Um, ex-Black Panther chapter party leader. Um, he was on the committee to free Angela Davis. He is truly a legend, but outside of all of that, he's just a really cool down-to-earth guy. Um, speaks really slowly and really thoughtfully about his experiences. And I think I really wanted to interview him because he also was the first owner of a Black-owned gay bar in San Francisco. Mm. All right, well, let's hear uh, Rodney Barnett talking about his experiences with racism back in the day in the Castro. When I first moved here, it, it wasn't known as the gay capital of the United States. Most of the activity was on Polk Street, but eventually things shifted to the Castro District. They started opening more restaurants, and, and the more white gay men that came, the more racist it got. And that's when we started getting carded uh, three pieces of ID 
to go in these bars, um, the bartender, they were always white, and they would bypass you when it was your turn to get served, and that would outrage you as well. They had goons at some of them, as security guards. Uh, there were fights that broke out. There were places that I went to that got so humiliating that I swore I would not go back because it was going to be dangerous for me or somebody else there. So when he started telling you about these experiences, what, what did you start thinking about? I started thinking about how familiar it felt <laughs> and how, you know, he was talking about these things that he's literally experienced 50 years ago. And some of them are exact experiences that I've had in the bars in San Francisco, in the East Bay, straight or gay. Um, specifically, not necessarily three forms of ID, because now we have, you know, legislation against that. But definitely the being bypassed by the bartenders or the, the bouncers at the door trying to play antics. Um, were all things that felt familiar to me as somebody, you know, who's been in the queer scene, but also they felt familiar to me as a black person coming from the South because those same attitudes and behaviors that really manifest in these direct, um, just in-your-face ways in the South still manifest in the Bay Area just in these more subtle, more sustained ways. So Rodney Barnett takes this experience and he opens up the new Eagle Creek Saloon. And I want to hear him talk about it. Do you want to set up anything else about that bar before we hear uh, Rodney again? Um, Absolutely. Just that it was definitely a family effort. He was really passionate when he was talking about how his brothers came together to help him, uh, you know, get get together the paperwork for the bar, get together the plumbing and the and the architecture and to rebuild the window um, and yeah, uh, t- I'll let him take the rest of it away. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's listen in again to uh, Rodney Barnett. I changed the name to the new Eagle Creek Saloon instead of just the Eagle Creek. Uh, the idea is that you keep the old name because people from different countries come looking for it and so forth. So it was uh, it was great. It was a cause for a great celebration. We wound up having eight bartenders, uh, and we had women DJs, which they didn't have, at least at that time, in any of these gay bars. Didn't have any black DJs. And uh, so we were able to provide uh, the entertainment that people wanted, and plus uh, provide employment uh, for talented black people that weren't able to express themselves and other establishments in San Francisco. And in that way, I guess it's a bar, but then it sort of functions as more like a community center. Exactly, and that's what we we call it, a community center that served alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so we celebrated people's birthdays. When they had a birthday, we had food and cakes and champagne. Our customers were very um, able to get involved. So somebody came up, well, here's a slogan, Rodney, a friendly place with a funky bass for every race. And that was perfect because we wanted to let people know everybody was invited and welcome there. I mean, who doesn't want to go there? <laughs> I know. It just sounds like such a dream. It really does. It really does. What, what happened to it, though? So the bar opened in 1990, and in 1993, there was an economic downturn where, um, you know, this may sound familiar, but the rent was going up, (laughs) and, you know, he couldn't afford to keep the space. And so the new Eagle Creek, unfortunately, came to a close uh, in 1993. 
I do love uh, something you know in the story is that his daughter created like a whole art installation dedicated to this kind of place. Absolutely, yes. His daughter, Sadie Barnett, who is an artist and a sculptor in her own right, uh, definitely. And I just saw the the fully reconstructed version of it a couple weeks ago. And it's a beautiful, like, U-shaped bar where you can actually go and sit and have a conversation with somebody. And I think it really speaks to the spirit of community that the original New Eagle uh, Creek Saloon tried to emulate and give to the community. Such a beautiful thing. We're talking about safe spaces for black queer people in the Bay Area. We're joined by Corey Antonio Rose, producer and host of Searching for a Kiki, which is a three-part series on the KQED podcast right now-ish, which you can go listen to the whole thing, hear Rodney Barnett's whole story, beautiful uh, story about, about building your own space. And we want to hear from you. What has your experience been finding a safe space in the Bay Area and do you feel like your identity has made that harder or easier for you uh, here in the Bay? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQD Forum. Or you can email, of course, your safe space forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal, joined again by Corey Antonio Rose. And we'll be back with more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about creating spaces for black queer people in the Bay Area. We're joined by Corey Antonio Rose, producer and host of Searching for a Kiki, a three-part series on the KQED podcast right now-ish. want to add another voice to this conversation. Don Romesburg is a professor of women's and gender studies at Sonoma State University, studies sexuality, gender, and U.S. history, uh, transgender studies, race and sexuality, queer performance, and popular culture. Welcome, Don Romsberg. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. You know, um, I wanted to ask you specifically about, you know, we heard Rodney Barnett talking about some of the exclusionary and racist practices that went on uh, within the gay nightlife scene in San Francisco. I was wondering if you could sort of bring us some more context around that, particularly in the Castro in San Francisco. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, in 2004, when um, I was already a historian, <laughs> but I <clears throat> got involved with an organization that had just started up that became known as Encastro for All, that was an anti-racist organization that was really confronting the uh, exclusionary practices and policies of nightlife in the Castro at the time. And as a historian, I thought, well, what is the history of uh, the kinds of racist behaviors that we were seeing at that time at a bar called the SF Badlands? And so I looked back over since the 1970s and saw that there is this repeated pattern that really resonates with what Corey's saying, um, that racism has always been a problem in San Francisco's gay community and especially the Castro since it first became a gay neighborhood in the 1970s, uh, that the problem had not abated over time, although there'd been these periodic efforts to address it, uh, that periods of activism were able to produce tangible kinds of changes in specific uh, businesses and practices and even governmental policy, uh, but that ultimately businesses and even the community were really slow to respond to calls to reform mm -hmm. and only did so when um, they were confronted by bad public relations or tickets or threats of loss of revenue. Mm -hmm. You know, we have these kind of things going on, but there's obviously also in the Bay these other political traditions that have seen the fights against oppression of gay people as inextricable from the fight against anti-blackness and, and racism in general. How how did those things kind of come together or or not in these fights? Yeah, I mean, you definitely saw um, in um, a variety of these actions, there was an action, for example, in September of 1975, where 120 people from Bay Area Gay Liberation picketed a bar called the Mineshaft. Uh, calling for a boycott due to its racial discrimination and arbitrary dress code and, quote, goon tactics, as they said. Um, and they, like Corey mentioned, um, uh, enforced a requirement of up to three forms of ID for admittance. And they would, of course, use those um, for those people that don't know the way that that works as a screening practice is for white, middle-class, attractive, young gay men. They ask for no ID at the door or maybe one ID for people that uh, they, through racist practices or gender discriminatory practices, want to exclude, they ask them for a second form of photo ID, if they are able to present that somehow, a third, and so on. And eventually, it forces the person away from the door um, without overtly saying, we don't serve your kind here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you saw um, in those early actions, uh, like the Bay Area Gay Liberation one, you saw coalitions with communities of color, as well as um, with um, the formation of early um, organizations for that are multiracial kinds of organizations in the queer community. Got a great uh, comment in from Daniel. I'm going to bounce this one to you, Corey Antonio. Uh, Daniel writes... There was a black gay bar called Bojangles in the Tenderloin. Bojangles, Tender... <laughs> yes. <laughs> At the corner of Larkin and Ellis Street in San Francisco when I moved here in 1975. It was an all-black dance bar, very, very few white patrons, but we would go to do the hustle and bus stop with other like-minded white gays and our black brothers. Tony Bravo told me it was a drag bar. It was not. There were plenty of bars in the loin for our drag sisters. It was all the hottest black men in San Francisco. But yes, it eventually became a white gay bar, Oil Can Henry's, I thought Bojangles was black-owned, but never really knew for sure. Corey, why don't I bounce this to you? 
you do focus on you know black owned, queer owned versus you know these kind of other terms like you know queer friendly or black friendly. Um, what what's really significant for you about focusing in on you know kind of ownership of these spaces? Yeah, so the idea of ownership comes in for me, where you know it's it's Wednesday night. You haven't been out in three weeks, and you know you're maybe you don't have work the next day, and you're feeling it. You're like, okay. Tonight's the night. I'm about to go out, shake some tail, and then get back to life the next day. Uh, and then you look at your options, and there's nobody who's playing the R&B music. Nobody's playing hip-hop. Nobody's who, you know, you're not going to see black bartenders. You're not going to see black DJs. Um, unless it's, like, one night out of the month at a specific bar. And I think San Francisco slash Bay Area queer culture is that instead of black people having ownership of a space where you can go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and get your judge, you know, instead it's like you have to pick these these couple dates out of the month and sort of schedule your nightlife around those if you want to really be surrounded by black folks in the nightlife. Yeah. Um, and then it's also important because economically, you know, we're spending our money at places that aren't necessarily feeding back into the black community. Um, and so it's always important to necess- to have a sort of space where, like Rodney said, it's a community center that serves alcohol. So when you're spending money at this Black-owned bar, yes, you're also paying to support the bar, but you're also indirectly going to, you know, you're supporting the DJs that work there. You're supporting the drag queens that perform there. Um, it, it, you're, you're contributing to the community's self-determination. Yeah, yeah. And I would like to add, yes, Bojangles, Rodney mentioned Bojangles, and he told me how um, it was a fun place and how after the night was over, the police would be waiting outside with paddy wagons waiting to lock people up. So you felt like you had to sort of run out um, after the night was done in order to not get arrested. Let's bring in uh, our first caller. Let's bring in uh, John from San Diego. Welcome, John. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I um, arrived in San Francisco on September the 4th, 1979. I was 27 and from Ireland, and I was kind of shy, definitely naive, and didn't really kind of fit into places around the Castro. I mean, I would just always find a corner or whatever it is, and then I discovered this bar called the Pendulum. And I started going to the Pendulum, but then I found out as the more I went to the pendulum, the more the people that I kind of thought were friends found out that I was going there. They started to kind of call me names. I'm a white guy and say things about me and whatever it is. Or if I went into another bar and I saw a handsome guy and I would say to somebody I was with, look at that handsome guy over there. Oh, my God. And they would say, where is he? Where is he? I see he's right there. And then I would have to say the black guy. And they would just totally ignore me. Totally ignore him, no interest, just carry on. So I started going to the pendulum on a regular basis. And it was, I still have friends from the pendulum. Some of them, a lot of them have died, unfortunately. And they took me in and introduced me to Thanksgiving and dinner (laughs) parties and a wonderful life. And I, then became a member of a thing called We Care Bay Area and used to stick up flyers and they had pool parties and all these wonderful things. And we were a little integrated community 
I mean, not in the pendulum, but also in this other group that I became a friend of. And I just talked to my friend Bob the other day, and he's in his 80s. And I can't believe that I had to learn that awful thing about America. It was such a hard thing to understand. And then once I kind of understood it, that I thought, wow. And now, like all these years later at 67, to think that it is still going on. It's still going on. Mm -hmm. It's so hard. And these young men that you have on your panel today, I really feel, you know, my heart goes out to you guys for not having a place that you can say, wow, this is free. This is great. This is a lovely place to be. I just, the pendulum was an oasis in the Castro. I met Glenn Burke there, the famous baseball player. I mean, I remember he came up He came up to me and said, why don't you come and talk to me? And I just told him, half the bar is talking to you. Nobody's talking to me. <laughs> Where are you? I didn't even know who he was. Yeah. And then we started kind of seeing each other for a while. But I think the fact that I didn't know anything about baseball was why he liked me. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, John. And I also, um, there's something really powerful about the fact that you remember uh, the the date, you know, uh, that, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for for the call. Could you just want to respond? You know, since he's, he's talking about your experience, you want to respond? Absolutely. I mean, I think I don't want to make it sound like oh, I've never found a single moment of joy in the Castro or, or in this city <laughs> at all. But it's definitely like he's speaking to some real stuff, and it's generational. Like the idea that this was happening in the 70s and that nothing systemically has changed to make sure that it is not happening today um, really speaks to the culture. I mean, some of the things he described with his friends or the things that his friends would say are definitely things, behaviors and attitudes that I've seen still today in the Castro and beyond. I mean, you can go to Dolores Park and get that. You know, we had can a... I, oh, sorry. Oh, go, go ahead. Add? Yeah, go ahead, Don. Yeah. yeah. So um, the pendulum is, is a, a space that I think is a particularly painful loss for the Castro. Um, and uh, when we were involved in the campaign against the racist uh, door and employment practices at SF Badlands, um, we were able to uh, achieve some pretty significant victories. Um, there was a, a undisclosed five-figure amount that was uh, mm-hmm. a settlement uh, with the complainants uh, through the um, city that uh, went to seed money to develop queer of color spaces, and he, uh, uh, the owner, ref- uh, agreed to cease his selective door and hiring practices, and the staff there did become more diverse, and the city finally passed uh, a law banning multiple ID door policies because of our activism uh, in, from 2004 to 2006. Uh, but the other thing that happened in relation to that was that the owner, Les Natale, bought the pendulum at the same time and turned it into Toad Hall, um, which is a, a gay bar that is not at all centered around uh, black welcoming black people specifically in the way that the pendulum was wow. for, for decades. And so it was a very painful loss. And in fact, one of the most recent big actions, um, anti-racist actions in the Castro around nightlife happened in 2015 when um, queer and trans people of color um, were marching in a campaign called Shut Down the Castro to sort of name the um, exclusionary things that were happening in the Castro. And the DJ at, at Toad Hall 
like yelled at the protesters and uh, a white bar patron threw a broken bottle at one of the protesters. And so it ended up leading to a big action where like 200 people were protesting in front of the bar a month later and chalking uh, queer uh, lives matter, queer brown lives matter, black lives matter, black trans lives matter. So, um, you know, the, the struggle continues, right? Yeah. I want to add in uh, another voice into our conversation here. Victoria Kirby York is the deputy executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, a civil rights organization that's dedicated to the empowerment of black LGBTQ plus people and co-sponsor of the Lavender Book, a directory of safe spaces. Welcome, Victoria. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. So um, tell us a little bit about the Lavender Book and where you see sort of its roots in these sort of different liberation struggles. Yes, yes, definitely. I've enjoyed listening to the conversation so far. So many um, important stories have come up and I, I believe stories and experiences help to really shape how we and future generations think about and conceive our communities and how they've shifted over time. So just want to first Thank show you. gratitude for the conversation that, that has been happening already. It's been amazing. Um, the Lavender Book, which folks can get to by going to lavenderbook.org, is a project that the National Black Justice Coalition and Out in Tech partnered on to create a tool that would allow folks to identify businesses and um, social spaces, congregations, et cetera, spaces, as we call it, um, that are both affirming of one's Black identity and also affirming of your LGBTQ plus and same gender loving identity. It's The name was chosen as a playoff of the Green Book, which more people got to learn a lot more about with the recent because movie. Because of the sort of bad movie. <laughs> 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 yeah, the recent movie, um, you know, wh whose lead character is a Black, same gender loving man, right? Um, and the, the, green, the Green Book was this directory that helped um, Black people during the Jim Crow era know what are the safe hotels to go to sleep at night where you don't have to worry about the Klan coming in um, and, and harassing or harming you. Um, you know, what are the staying away from the communities that are sundown communities where literally like you're not able to be a black person in that community after sundown, right? Um, and so it plays off of that name to create a directory that allows folks to find um, places that helps people to navigate around some of the experiences that were shared um, earlier, which is, you know, like as Corey described, going to the Castro and, and feeling like, yes, I'm going to be like fully affirmed for who I am and then experiencing the pain of racism or going into a barbershop or beauty salon and experiencing the pain of anti-LGBTQ bias. Um, we, we wanted to give people a space where folks could um, learn from other people what are the places where you can really um, be celebrated and not tolerated or excluded. You know, Corey, this is like the sort of thing that you could could possibly use, right? So what are the other kinds of resources that you found? Was it mostly talking to, to elders rather than, you know, going to like a site that's tried to assemble and aggregate these things? Um, well, first, hey, Victoria, how are you? Hey. Um, definitely want to shout you out and shout out the Lavender book. I think it really speaks to how 
Um, you know, Alexis, when we talk about how the intersectionality of Black and queer people is, like, inextricable, you know, a lot of the organizing tactics, a lot of the um, reasons why the queer progressive movement was able to move forward is because they borrowed tactics from the Black Lives Matter movement, from the civil rights movement, and from these movements for Black liberation. And so seeing the Lavender Book as, like, sort of this perfect blend of, of black liberation tactics and, and organizing as, and then marrying that with like the queer search for a safe space is so beautiful. Um, in my personal experience, I think I have found a lot and probably the most valuable insights from elders who have lived in the community for X amount of years because they are the ones who are like, oh, go to this party, it happens every year, just get a ticket or they'll get you the ticket. Um, or, you know, they'll let you know about resource centers. Um, the Oakland LGBT Center uh, is a great resource for anybody who's looking to find more affirming spaces for Black queer folks. Um, and also recognizing that Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, all of these places have spaces that even if they weren't owned by Black people, Black people found safety there, found space there. Um, I mean, we've, men we've mentioned Pendulum, we've mentioned... Bojangles, and I think there are still spaces in the Bay that sort of live in that spirit of maybe not necessarily being Black-owned, but still occupying that space for us. Yeah. So just being really curious as well, asking around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're talking about spaces for Black queer people in the Bay Area with Corey Antonio Rose, producer and host of Searching for a Kiki, a three-part series on the KQED podcast right now-ish. Don Romesberg, a professor of women and gender, women's and gender studies at Sonoma State University. And Victoria Kirby-York, deputy executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, we would love to hear from you. What has been your experience of finding a safe, inclusive, fun space in the Bay Area? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about spaces for black queer people in the Bay Area with Corey Antonio Rose, producer and host of Searching for a Kiki, a new series inside the KQED podcast right now-ish. Also joined by Don Romesberg, a professor of women's and gender studies at Sonoma State, and Victoria Kirby-York, deputy executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, which created and is a co-sponsor of the Lavender Book, a directory of safe spaces. Uh, Corey, I wanted to get to 
another type of organizing for safe space, and that is the Transgender Cultural District. We've had a a show on it here uh, on Forum, and you talked with one of the founders. Can you set up maybe uh, talking with Arya Saeed, the president and chief strategist of the Transgender Cultural District in San Francisco? Absolutely. Arya is that girl. Um, You know, if you were hip to, I guess, the recent controversies controversies with Cops and Pride, uh, she was part of that resolution to get it all resolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also just an amazing strategist, political mind. Like, she helps people get jobs, get housing, get access to the things that they need to be successful and to take those steps towards self-determination. Um, and she also was part of the fight to get the Transgender Cultural District legally recognized uh and yeah i don't know there's not much more i can yeah, say about yeah, her besides yeah. just rambling sure. on about how wonderful she is yeah uh, well let's let's listen to her talk we're kind of telling this story as kind of an intergenerational multi-generational story so let's listen in to her talk about the experience of trans women living in the tenderloin in the 1920s at those times it was illegal to be trans it was illegal to quote-unquote cross-dress. And so there were laws in San Francisco that you could not wear more than three articles of clothing belonging to the other sex. But the Tenderloin was like this red light district, and so the city and law enforcement treated it as a container space. For the last hundred years, it's always been the place you let your guard down and anything can happen. Trans people would move to San Francisco. Trans women would be living in the SROs and the Tenderloin. At that time, living in the SRO was very glamorous. You know, in the Tenderloin, uh, there used to be a string of jazz clubs. Billie Holiday or Duke Ellington, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, and all these different greats. James Baldwin and everybody in between were frequently coming to San Francisco from New York and Paris. And many trans women were you know, doing sex work or cabaret shows, burlesque, and living and working in the Tenderloin. And we don't even know it because, you know, who's teaching that in a school? (laughs) Not my school. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Not my school either. Um, There we were listening to Arya Saeed talk with Corey Antonio Rose. Arya Saeed is the president and chief strategist of the Transgender Cultural District in San Francisco. And Don uh, Rosenberg, I wanted to come to you as a historian on this question, you know, especially thinking about the differences in the way that the Castro and the Tenderloin are presented and talked about now. Yeah, first of all, I will say, yes, my school, because we have a queer studies minor. (laughs) Um, uh, But um, no, I mean, I think that, right, the Castro was created um, essentially as a district where white middle class, I mean, first it was a place that people moved over the hill from the hate uh, because the hate became too expensive. And so some of the hippies moved over the hill, but uh, very quickly it became a, the kind of the, the neighborhood of Harvey Milk, right? So where white middle class uh, gay men uh, could be successful as merchants, as uh, activists, as people who, as residents, right? And as revelers. And um, uh, it's, it's always struggled with um, trying to be more inclusive and live up to uh, its promise, right? The reason that my now defunct organization that we had for a while called Castro for All was called that was because we knew that there was this global reputation of 
the Castro as a place of sort of um, worldwide homecoming for queer and trans people, but that the reality on the ground uh, was very different if you were brown, black, homeless, uh, didn't have money, um, a woman, trans, right? Um, the, the, the Tenderloin has a whole different history, which um, Aria really points out, which is that because it was San Francisco's primary vice district for decades and decades, there were things that were sort of contained within the Tenderloin, but also tolerated within the Tenderloin more in terms of sex work and underground uh, economies, um, different kinds of nightlife that helped cement San Francisco's reputation as a wide open town, as a town that people come to, mm. to kind of party and have the experiences that you might not have back home in Kansas, right? Um, and so in that space, um, there was um, a very policed but tolerated existence for black and brown, queer and trans people and low income queer and trans people um, that um, created a whole system, a whole, a whole world, a whole um, site of possibilities. Um, a lot of times, though, it still wasn't on their own terms all the time, right? And so that's why you see, for example, the Compton's Cafeteria riot of um, 1966, where you have this um, riot of um, a, a place uh, in, the, in the Tenderloin, in the neighborhood, um, Compton's Cafeteria, where late night a lot of the queer and trans people in the community would hang out and police would always come in there and bus people and the uh, uh, owners sometimes would try to push them out because they weren't buying enough food to sort of take up their their space in terms of their seats and the banquettes, right? Um, and so there was an uprising against it. Um, but uh, again, that's yet another example of how black and brown queer and trans people have had to assert um, their right to belong to the spaces that they already inhabit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Corey and Terry Rose, I, I wanted to come to you on this topic of sort of trying, you know, we, we're hearing this story, you know, these these echoes of history, and, and not just echoes in some cases, straight up repeats of, of history. And I want to get to the story of people who are trying to build build new things like you know Victoria Kirby and the and the Lavender Book, and also Nena Joyner. Can you talk a little bit about what Nena Joyner is up to? Absolutely. So Nina is a non-binary entrepreneur. If y'all have ever been to Fillmore in Oakland or Berkeley, then y'all have definitely experienced their excellence. Um, <laughs> they are opening the Fillmore Social Club in uh, later this year in downtown Oakland. And cool. so it will be one of the only black queer owned uh, social spots for us in the East Bay. And at the same time, right, there's been some really serious kind of struggles, even though Nena Joyner is a fully established business person and they've been very successful. They have actually kind of struggled uh, to get the capital to you know, open this open this bar. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I really was so grateful for that we got to touch on in our conversation with Nina was the just the discriminatory bank loaning practices that I think none of us are, are stranger to uh, in San Francisco. And we all you know, have heard the news about the different banks and, and what their loaning practices have been. Um, and it's definitely been part of the conversation about yeah. reparations. But... To hear it coming from somebody who's actively trying to build space and how it affects literally like 
these systems have ripple effects for everybody in the Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just able to outline it so beautifully, as well as having the experience of somebody who's been in the clubs and, and in the bars in the Bay Area throughout the 2000s and seeing how that community dealt with its own issues, um, you know, throughout the gentrification of Oakland over these past couple decades. Let's, uh, let's hear Nana Joyner's voice as she talks about struggles to access capital. When I first started Fillmore, I started with my own money. I started at the Ashby BART station, selling out the trunk of my car, like literally on the street corners. Did I want to start? I darn show wanted to start this business. And was I going to use that rap music that I, that I listened to when I first started learning about Oakland um, to infuse in me that you can start this out the trunk of your car? Like, look at all these rappers, like E-40, for example. I've never met him. But he started out the trunk of his car in Baleo. Now look at him. Getting money is not easy. Not on your first business. Especially, you'll say, brown and queer. What does that mean? The historical nature of it is people will look at you as not bankable. People will look at your business like, what kind of business can brown people do? You have to be very adamant about what you want to do. You're going to have to show that you've done it in your own life with a little bit of money. And every level we go up to in banking, I've had to like, I won't say my bank's name, but I've had to like lay in and be like, look, I feel that you're not respecting me. You're not taking me seriously. Like having to go to history lessons with banks. Like I've had to do that because I'm fighting. I'm fighting against knowing that you just gave a million dollars to someone else, knowing that you just showed up at the planning commission to support your client, but you can't even show up for me. And I've been with you for over 13 years. That was a uh, Nana Joyner, owner of the Feel More Queer Friendly Sex Toy Shops, as well as a soon to be a social space. Um, I wanted to come to you, uh, Victoria Kirby York, on some of those the struggles of creating black owned queer friendly spaces, uh, and, and in particular, just trying to trying to um, like get the, make the economics of that work. How has your organization uh, seen that play out? Yeah, we see that play out across the country. Um, one of the, the hard pieces is not just starting the business, but then keeping the doors open. We've seen um, thriving um, Black-owned LGBTQ bars that make, you know, great amounts of money that end up you know, completely torn down in cities like Washington, D.C., as an example, to build baseball stadiums or interstates, um, you know, or otherwise have eminent domain uh, be one of the the reasons um, the bars no longer exist and are not set up to be um, brought back into existence in other parts of the city, um, you know, after those decisions. Or as Corey mentioned earlier, um, the price of rent goes up if you're leasing a space um, to a a degree that um, it's no longer affordable to maintain that space. And I believe that communities, municipalities, and elected officials have a role to play in ensuring that there are public spaces for all kinds of members of our community, especially for those who experience multiple levels of marginalization for different parts of our identities. And so whether it's government support or lack of support, or as was just discussed in banking, looking at how interest rates are different based off the same 
qualifications if you're a black person or a white person uh, going in to get a loan um, or when it comes to the business plan, um, as was discussed, how thorough uh, it is for, it must be for white uh, folks who are seeking to get a loan versus the hurdles that black folks have to jump through um, to make the pitch and convince folks that this business idea is worthy and, and has a market. I think one of the things about the Lavender book is that as we're pushing people to reflect on these places that feel like home to them and to put them into the lavender book so that when people go to search, you can, you can find places um, that you feel home. One of the things that we've seen is there are some communities that folks are hard pressed to find places where they are able to feel um, wholly welcome. And so sometimes, uh, locations won't come up because someone just hasn't gone in to, to put it in there. And sometimes it's because that community has zero places where folks um, like me uh, can go and feel wholly affirmed. And so that to me, when it comes to business ownership should be a big indicator for the needs of the community, right? The fact that there is a need that hasn't been met. And typically that is supposed to be one of the hallmarks for what makes a strong business plan is that there's, you know, in terms of competition, there's a market that needs to be spoken to um, that no one uh, is including and that you are providing a unique space. And it's why some of these businesses have been very successful um, over time, but have um, had to close for a whole host of reasons that has little to do with the, the appetite folks have um, for having those spaces. Mm -hmm. And so we all have to do more to, um, to, to help protect these businesses. The same things are happening with some of the lesbian uh, clubs around the country as well. Um, or even um, party promoter nights, which for a long time were some of the ways that the need was met where a black club might have a gay night, which is what happened where I grew up in Tampa. Uh, it was a nice little hole in the wall, but it was our hole in the wall. And we packed that place out every Saturday night. I know that's right. I know that's right. <laughs> it was called the Harbor Club. And it was our piece of sanctuary until that night no longer happened anymore. Right. And so there has to be a constant a call to action to our banks, to elected leadership, to um, folks who are in civic roles, public servant roles that are part of the process, and also to our community members to help make sure that mm -hmm. folks understand what's at stake when one business closes and makes it that much harder for the next one to yeah. open. Uh, Corey Antonio Rose, uh, thank you for that, Victoria Kirby York. Um, Corey, I wanted to ask you this. I want to think the best of the Bay Area. I do love this place. And I think my question is, is the Bay Area worse than the same as other places that you've you've been in your body and your identity? Or is it just more disappointing because you were hoping it would be better? Oh, wow. Um, I would say in some aspects it is worse because I think – it's there it's one thing for these systemic inequities to exist and then it's another thing for people to, to for the inequities to be so present and so clear and so in your face and then for people around you to act like they don't exist and i feel like in the south it's very much like you know what's up um <laughs> you know what's up for the south and you know 
exactly what you're getting into, more or less. Um, whereas I think because San Francisco and, and the Bay Area generally makes so much money off of its name of being a queer safe haven, that yes, it does feel a little, you know, a little shortchangey, a little backstabby to get here and then see that the experience is so different. However, I will say the Bay Area does have its, you know, place. There are, there are definitely parts of the Bay Area that I wouldn't trade for another part of America. Mm. And I take that as a compliment. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have been talking about spaces for black queer people in the Bay Area with Corey Antonio Rose, who inspired this show, of course. He's the producer and host of Searching for a Kiki, a three-part series on the KQED podcast right now-ish. Thank you so much, Corey, for joining us. Thank you all so much for having me. I'll be back. <laughs> yes, you will. You will. Uh, Don Romsberg, uh, professor of women's and gender studies at Sonoma State University, also, as you heard in this program, uh, an anti-racist activist here in the Bay. Thank you so much for joining us, Don. Absolutely. My pleasure. And let me just lift up the National Black Justice Coalition because they were there on the ground with us throughout the whole campaign from 2004 to 2006 uh, against the Badlands. And they have been at every action uh, um, around this stuff in the Bay Area for a long time. So um, gratitude to you and gratitude to, to Corey for doing the story. Thank you so much. You, uh, We do have Victoria Kirby York, Deputy Executive Director of the National Black Justice Coalition, Thank you so much for the work and for joining us this morning, Victoria. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This Hour of Forum is produced by Blanca Torres and Grace Wan. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, Chris Hoff, and Christopher Beal. Our intern is Paul C. Kelly Campos. Susan Davis is our senior producer. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. 
New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.